This is Brain Diet, episode 173, Recovering from Addiction with Brad Jensen. I love so much focusing on the food we feed our body, but I love even more focusing on the stuff we feed our brain. My name is Taylor Ann Macy, and I am a certified life coach. Welcome to Brain Diet, where we feed your brain the best information. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of the podcast. Today, I am sharing with you my conversation with Brad Jensen, whose handle on Instagram is the Sober Bodybuilder. And if that handle doesn't draw you in, his story will. And then after you are drawn in by his story, you will continue to be drawn in by his intellect and by his intelligence when it comes to fitness and nutrition. I have followed him for a long time and was initially drawn in by his story and then quickly learned how informative and helpful his approach to life and to nutrition and diet and exercise was. And so I am just really grateful that I was able to have some of his time today and have him on the podcast. He shares a great deal about his story and how he got to where he is today, a very successful entrepreneur who at one point had been booked in jail 17 times, I believe he says, and was homeless and addicted to drugs and alcohol. And he is just such an incredible human. And I am so grateful that I was able to ask him some questions and hear his story firsthand after having followed him. He is a great resource for anyone that is in the realm of nutrition and diet and fitness and wants to better themselves in any way. He is a great person to follow. He talks about a few different things he's got going on that I will link in the show notes. Um, But I just am really excited to share this conversation with you today. Brad is awesome. Be sure to check him out and we will get right into our conversation. What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of the podcast. I am really excited today to share with you our guest, someone that I have followed for a long time that I have so much respect for, Brad Jensen. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Very kind words. Appreciate it. Yeah. Glad to be here. I'm pumped. I've been so excited to chat with you. So for those that are unfamiliar with Brad, his Instagram handle is the sober bodybuilder. So I would love for you just to give us an introduction to who you are within the context of why that's kind of the title that you lead with on social media, at least. Yeah. What's funny is I'm no longer a bodybuilder. I am still sober. So I've always made a joke like, if I relapse, I'd have to call myself like the not sober, not body. It's just I think it's too many words, too many characters. Not either, doing my best. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> the, the mediocre. Um, but I still live, um, you know, I guess you call it a bodybuilding lifestyle. I'm, I I don't know. I, I work out like a bodybuilder, but I'm not obsessed like a bodybuilder anymore. How about that? Um, you say like your training is pretty true to bodybuilding programming still? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and definitely not as much, um, not as much volume as I used to do, but, um, very similar. Yeah. Like the, you know, training for hypertrophy. And so, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I gave myself that tagline, I think it was probably 18 months sober. Um, and so, you know, 
quick backstory and you can dive in as much as you want is um, I spent a decade of my life addicted to drugs and alcohol. And, uh, you know, by the end, it wasn't pretty. Spoiler alert. It usually never is. But um, <laughs> like homeless, lived on the streets and I uh, got sober November 20th, 2012. And so, um, you know, I'm very, very grateful uh, to have about 10 and a half years sober. And I think that says far more about God than it does Brad Jensen. And I will always say that um, I put in a lot of work, but without that, uh, without that driving force of a, of a spiritual connection, um, I wouldn't be here today because left to my own devices, I never could quite put anything. One plus one never equaled two for me. So, mm -hmm. and, um, and yeah, I was, I was a competitive bodybuilder early on in my, my sobriety. And so that's when I gave myself that handle and uh, it just kind of stuck and it stuck around. And so, you know, here we are. Were you interested in fitness before you had gotten into drugs and alcohol or was it something that came post sobriety that really became a passion for you? No. So actually it was, I found it when I was about 13, 14, I was about 14 years old. So I was a, I hit that awkward 12 year old chubby face. That's just the worst. Like I it just, the worst. if we can just skip like ages 12 to 14, like just, let's just not do them. <laughs> They're just such an awkward age. And I feel like, I mean, I don't know. I can't speak to it because I've, I've only had one experience, but I feel like it's almost even more awkward for like boys at that age, like the puberty thing. But I guess girls start having a period. It's all weird. It's, it's all weird. weird. Yeah. And I was that typical, like, you know, I was a chubby kid and really I just hadn't, I was a late bloomer in puberty and a late bloomer in, um, a height growth. And I definitely had really horrible habits of like eating macaroni and cheese and watching or playing Nintendo, but I hung around with kids that were, I mean, looking back, they were just, they were just ectomorphs. They were just skinny, mm -hmm. you know, they had rib cages and like we called that abs like I was so jealous of them but yeah. and I'm like well they weren't buff like but they weren't fat like me <laughs> so just, all the girls yeah. yeah thought they were muscular and I'm like mm, I don't know about that now um and so I was picked on I was teased a little and and again I always make it very clear I was not thrown in like I, there was kids who are truly bullied um, and it was probably us, it was bullying, but it was with my friends. Like it was like, you know, I hung out with the cool kids, quote unquote, but I was kind of always the, the butt end of the joke. You know, if there was leftover pizza, they're like, you know, how many pizzas should we get? And they're like, I don't know, Brad's fat. I'll eat them all. Like we have extra. And I'm like, oh, that's not funny. <laughs> um, and so I was picked on and teased and, you know, I wore the, the black shirt, um, you know, and in Utah it gets to hundred degrees in the middle of July. And like, I'm wearing the black shirt to the public pool. I mean, that was me. I was really insecure about it. And so about 14 years old, um, I was in a bookstore back when people used to go to bookstores. Yeah. What's that? Um, I know I saw Barnes and Noble the other day. I'm like, oh, well, there's still, still a thing. Awesome. Yeah. Um, and I was in there with my mom she was getting a book and I was in the magazine section. I remember seeing this muscle and fitness and I saw this dude on it and I just like wanted to look like him. I was so enthralled. I was like, wow. And you know, I picked up the magazine and I remember it was the first thing I'd been passionate about my whole entire life. Like I just kept reading and I was like, wow, look at this. And so I ripped out a page and it was the diet page um, mm. of like this diet. And looking back, I'm sure this was for like a bikini girl competitor because I remember very distinctly ate like four egg whites and a half a grapefruit and like something else for breakfast. It so was it was like some type of meal plan, like eat this yeah. to lose weight type of thing. Okay, that's funny. Yes. Yeah. And so I, I um, and I started implementing it and I started to lose weight. 
And I remember I was just fascinated with like kind of how I could change my body. And then uh, when I was 16, because my mom said I have to wait till I get a driver's license to go to the gym, I started going to the gym. And that's when I really fell in love was like, because mm -hmm. I'd actually got a little too skinny um, from following everything. And so I was into this. That was my first first love was the gym. And I got really into it. And then watching how weights transform this um, <clears throat> young body that had all this testosterone flow flowing through it was just you know when i i went from uh you know i got the popular girl in school like dated the captain of the drill team and like i had thought i kind of arrived but little did i know what i was about to get into but so yeah that's mm -hmm. the uh i i found fitness a long time ago you know the gym was um was a place that you know i i did gain some confidence and it was great mm -hmm. and um you know these older guys i was probably so annoying i was just like what are you doing there and they're like this is called the drop set i'm like why oh, did you i do love that set? like yeah, and they were yeah. super kind to me and i mean i would spend three or four hours there a day after school i mean not lifting the whole time but just picking people's brains yeah. and they, uh, they were super kind to me i honestly it's funny i was chatting on a podcast um with a different guest um on my show and and we talked about, I think the gym culture has changed a little. I mean, I think the use of cell phones and everyone's filming themselves now and tripods and like, it's just changed a little. Um, people were so kind to me and I'm even like a little less tolerant of people in the gym. Now I'm like, leave me alone. I got to get my workout in. Yeah. Um, and so I'm trying to work on that a little better because there was a lot of guys who helped me early on. Yeah. And I love that you had the 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 courage and we're, we're brave to approach people because I think that there is something that's very unique and super awesome about gym communities because you have a lot of like-minded people generally speaking and I think it 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 says a lot for a young boy to be able to approach someone and be like hey I want to know what you're doing and why I think that's so brave and probably a good piece of advice for anybody to say be brave and ask people if you have questions because otherwise it's it's it can be embarrassing to be at a gym and you feel like not embarrassing it just can be easy to be self-conscious right so i love that you were courageous in that way it's like i was too young to too dumb to know any better that they might be annoyed by me because i just <laughs> i just and i remember i was scared sometimes but it did it taught me a lot it taught me to like you know from an early age to like ask for help when i didn't know how to do something and and that wasn't like that just i knew they had what i wanted i looked at them and was like they're buff and like to, i mean these guys were probably in their early you know, to mid 20, some of them were in their forties and fifties, but mm -hmm. you know, as a 16 year old, that seems like they're, they're way older than me. Right. And yeah. so they were, um, for the most part, all very kind. And so, yeah, that's kind of where, um, that's where it all started. That's, that's where it all started. And so then at what point did drugs become and alcohol become a more prominent part of your life? Like when was it, when were you introduced to it all? Yeah. So going back a little, I went during that chubby phase that really uncomfortable. And I tell people like, I came out of the, I became a drug addict, not because, you know, my dad wasn't, I mean, he wasn't home a lot, but it's because he worked a ton. And then he was, uh, he was in the, um, he was a bishop in, in the eldest church. And so he would work and then, but not like yeah. where my dad wasn't around. My dad wasn't present. Like my mom didn't do drugs with me. I wasn't in the, you know, foster system. Like there was some, you know, um, I didn't have any select sexual molestation. That's a very common thing, especially with females in, in the recovery community. Um, I just feel like that was my challenge in life. Like I came out of the womb, like restless, irritable and discontent. Like I was just really uncomfortable all the time. And, you know, 13 years old, I'm kind of getting picked on by my friends. My weight's a little higher. I'm definitely chubbier than them. Um, they're getting cute girls. I'm not like, I remember, and I, I didn't know how to go then and go to my parents and go like, Hey, 
I'm struggling with anxiety. In fact, they just knew I was a little off. So I went to the doctor and they put me on Ritalin, like probably the worst thing they could do because they thought I had, I do have ADD, but like that didn't help it. Right. Yeah. Um, and during that time, I, I first experimented with alcohol and growing up in a religious home, like that's not something that was around me. Like it's not something we did. And I remember thinking like, I don't do that. And I was, I was about 13 the first time I drank alcohol. And when it, when it hit my system, I remember when I first tasted it, I was like, why would adults do this? This is awful. Like this was, it was the gross thing I've ever tried. And about 20 minutes later, I was like, ha this all makes sense. I know why they do this. This is pretty yeah. cool. Um, and so that kind of continued here and there, like just out of my mom, my friend's mom's, you know, liquor cabinet and we'd steal some and, um, get caught and she'd get mad at us. And, but then when I found lifting, I remember, um, you know, I read somewhere that, you know, drinking alcohol was really bad for building muscle. And so I just stopped. I was like, nope, I was so into this that I was like, not going to do it. So I just quit altogether. And, um, but even as I got buff, I got in shape. I remember like, I thought that would kind of solve all my problems. And while it did help a lot and there was a lot of good things that came from it, there was also like this feeling of like, okay, like you're, you're the buffest student in school now. You got the hot girl. Why are you still like, oh, just like, don't feel comfortable in your own skin. And it was better than that 13 year old kid. But, um, you know, and I, I wanted to party with my friends, but I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to do anything to hinder my, my physique. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, it was about my junior year of high school. We went to a party and you know, those defining moments in your life where you just kind of remember exactly. It's so funny. I don't remember a ton about my junior year of high school. I remember some things here and there, but I remember that house. And I remember before we went in, my buddy looked at me and he said, Hey, do you want some pain pills to get messed up before we go in? And like, this is how naive I was still at the time. I'm like, oh, I'm not in any pain. And he started laughing and he goes, no, bro, they'll make you feel like you're drunk, but you don't have to have a hangover. And I was like, what? He was like, and all he said was one, one line. And, and it's simply not true. But this is all he said to say to me was all the bodybuilders are doing it. I was like, what? For real? Mm -hmm. Okay. He's like, yeah, that's how they get like messed up, which is inherently false. But I was like. Okay, so I took them. We went in. I remember when they hit me. It was a split-level entry house. I remember there was, like, these red cups from having, like, the jungle juice alcohol thing and, and um, you know, a bunch of, like, you know, I remember everything about the house, the brown cabinets. I remember all of it um, because I remember feeling like this is the feeling I want the rest of my life. Like, there's mm -hmm. people who take pain pills after a surgery, and they say, like, oh, I hated them. They made me sick. And then there's other people who are like, oh, I could really see how you liked them. That was me. I was in love. It was, it was like the closest spiritual experience I'd felt. I was so, I was like, this is the feeling I want the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. And I chased it. Taylor, like instantly was not normal in the way I behaved to the point where, and, and this came to me later on sharing my podcast, uh, my story on a podcast. Uh, my buddy happened to listen who I was with that day. He ended up just kind of dabbling. He never got bad. Like I did. He got his stuff together yeah. after high school um, but he said, do you remember you came over to my house the next day and you stole more out of my mom's cabinet when, cause I said, where'd you get these? And he had said, oh, I got them from my mom. I'm like, well, get us more. And he's like, I can't, they're my mom's. And so I went over there the minute he went to the bathroom, I went and took them. And I, yeah. I didn't even remember that part of the story, but that's how abnormal from the get it was like already stealing from your friend when yeah. he said like, no, we can't do that. I can't get any more from her. Like I took them from her. We can't do more. Um, and so it just started right off the bat in a really unhealthy way. 
Is it true that some people are more prone to addiction than others? I mean, it sounds like for you at least, because like you said, some people feel differently on them. I know I don't particularly like feeling the feelings of opioids. It just is like not, not my jam, but is that generally true that some people just for whatever reason are more prone to it? Yeah. And they've even looked at some, some, I'm definitely not like the foremost expert on this. So I might be speaking out of turn a little, but I know they've done some testing where there are people who have, you know, people will say like, you know, it it's, it's hereditary and there is kind mm. of a genetic factor in it and a gene mutation that can kind of lead to more of this. And it's definitely seemed to be the case. So while there was no addiction in my immediate family, um, my mom's whole side of the family, I mean, you know, her brother was in and out of prison, methamphetamine addict, her, her, her sister, my aunt passed away and was, a, you know, a functioning drug addict, but a drug addict and alcoholic until the day she died. And it, it runs pretty rampant on that side of my family. And so, yeah, I mean, it definitely, whatever it was, it grabbed me pretty quick and it, um, it continued through high school and it went, um, by the end of my senior year of high school, I was taking trips down to Tijuana, Mexico, um, to, uh, go to the pharmacias down there mm -hmm. and we'd go there and I'd get a bunch of narcotics and I would take my door panels off my Pontiac Sunfire. I'd unscrew them and then I'd shove it all in there and I'd zip them back up, throw on a sombrero and drive through the border, not knowing the amount of app, like just federal felonies I was committing by like mm -hmm. drug trafficking through, through like international lines, mm -hmm. um, like idiot savant. Like I had no idea like what I was really doing. Um, somebody had told me about it. I tried it once it worked and I was like, all right, we're set. And yeah. uh, that's where I joke, but it's kind of serious that my entrepreneurship began as I began selling these, um, selling these pills to various high schools and, um, you know, people would, I started collecting money. I remember my mom found a briefcase one time full of money and drugs and was like, she let me keep it. I talked her into it. It was like, oh, that's not mine. I don't know how I got here. Mm -hmm. Um, She's like, looking back, how did I not know? Right. But it, um, and it spiraled real quick. Um, you know, when I was using every day towards the end of high school, I still went to high school. I still graduated, not like great grades, but, um, you know, I've been using them daily, but not a ton. And I would use some more on weekends, but I didn't ever run out was the problem. So at the end of my senior year, um, I, I, a friend had started doing the same thing going down to Mexico and he got caught down there. He was all over the news. He got stuck in a Mexican prison. And I was like, I'm too pretty to go to prison, especially in Mexico. <laughs> like, I'm not doing this. And so I thought, yeah. you know, what? it's time to clean up my life. By this point, I had got certified as a personal trainer when I was still in high school because my parents came to me and said, what college do you want to go to? And I looked at them like they were crazy. I was like, I literally hate school. Why would I keep going on purpose? And they're like, well, you have to do something. And so I got certified as a personal trainer and I got in a job at uh, this place called Bally Total Fitness, which has since gone under. Yeah. I think it was still stuck in the eighties in 2003. It was like, yeah, totally. That's funny. And so I was like, okay, this is my time. It's just time to Time to trying to clean up and move on. You know, by this point, my high school girlfriend had broken up with me because she was like, like, you're a drug addict. So I'm like, no, I'm not. She's like, no, you're a drug dealer and a drug addict. Like, and I'm not going to be around this. And I remember thinking like, okay, this is just like a high school thing. Chill out. But she was done. And so the, I had heard about these things called withdrawals. I'd heard about, and you got you to remember, like I was selling these to kids who were doing them on weekends. I didn't see the ugly side of addiction of people knocking on my parents' went, you know, my basement window at three in the morning needing their fix. I didn't see this side. I knew withdrawals. I'd heard about them. But I was like, oh, that's for like people who are really bad addicted. Um, 
And the day came that I ran out and I was like, Hey, this is kind of time to time to move on to this phase. And I was sicker than I'd ever imagined. Imagine the, the worst flu you've had times 10 with, with the, the hard part about withdrawals is add in this, like almost, almost on the verge of a panic attack at all times. It's the anxiety on top of the physical symptoms. And I was so sick and I, I was, I was in disbelief that it hit that bad. And so, um, I made a phone call and next thing you know, um, I go over to a buddy's house and I shot up heroin for the first time. That's all they had. And I remember when he, when he, when he offered it to me, that was a line in the sand I'd drawn. I raised with great morals and values. Like, like I, I was like, okay, that's crossing a line here. This imaginary mm-hmm. line that like, that's, that's bad. You go from pills to heroin. It's just a different, like, mm. and I remember I said no at first. And about five minutes later, I said, well, make me feel better. And he said instantly. So I did it. And, uh, that guy who gave it to me, who, um, passed away from this disease. Um, sadly, I remember he looked at me and I remember these words for the rest of my life. Another one of those defining moments. He said, kid, your life's never going to be the same. And I remember thinking, Oh, <laughs> what does that mean? My life. Yeah. Like, okay. I was like, you kind of sound like you're saying that in a bad way. Um, <laughs> I was like, Oh, and I remember thinking, well, certainly I'm not going to keep doing this. I didn't have a plan how I was going to deal with the withdrawals tomorrow. Mm-hmm. But I remember thinking, I didn't think in that moment, like, oh yeah, I'm just going to keep using this. I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to keep doing heroin. You're not going to be a heroin addict. Come on. I'm like 18 years old. Come on. And, uh, and I did, and I continued to use and ended up in my first treatment, um, at 20 years old. So And you've talked about how many times you had gone into treatment or had tried to quit. And on in 2012 was when it stuck and you've now been almost 11 years this year, right? Mm -hmm. What made the difference? You know, I went to that first treatment center and, uh, and I see this a lot, Taylor, with people over the years that have come in to lose weight. It's like the pain factor was significant. I mean, it was there, but it wasn't, it wasn't bad enough. Like Mm. I remember thinking, okay, I will admit that I'm a heroin addict and that, and I started using cocaine at that time too. And so I was like, okay, I'm a drug addict. I shouldn't do drugs. This clearly isn't working for me. But to admit defeat on alcohol, which I never even really drank because of its effect, I said, you know, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to, like, I'm not even legally of age to drink. So I will, I'll, I'll agree to stop doing the hard stuff, but I'm not going to not drink. And, and I didn't say that out loud because when I did, they told me you should stay longer in treatment. So I just was like, oh yeah, I'm not going to drink either. But in my head, I was like, well, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. And so I was always trying to find a way to hack the system. And I see this with weight loss too. It's like this constant ways to try to hack and like figure out this way instead of just doing it the proven way just like weight loss. It's like, it's so when my clients have gotten great results over the years, they're like, it's so funny when people are like, I haven't seen me in a long time. They go, what are you doing? And they're like, you know, I ate in a calorie deficit. I tracked my food. I worked out. I tracked my steps. I tried to manage my uh, stress and I got sleep. And they're like, oh, like that sucks. Like they wanted it to be like, oh, you took some glutide or like you're Uh like, they wanted it to be something where it's like a lack of work and dedication. Um, and that was me. I was always trying to find this easier, softer way. And, and not surprisingly, I started drinking. And then shortly after that, went back to what I really liked. And this pattern went on. I've been, I went to, um, went to, uh, treatment, I think six times in there. And I got booked into the county jail about 17 times. I stayed there about six times. Um, 
it's back when they used to take you to jail on everything. Nowadays, I hear they're like, they're too overcrowded. They won't even take you unless it's serious. Yeah. Like, that would have been nice. <laughs> um, felt like I was going all the time. And so to answer your question, like you say, what changed? What made the difference essentially just for that one time where you feel like it, it was what made it last versus the other times when it didn't, you know, <clears throat> try to sum this up quick, kind of taking you back. I'll just kind of tell the tell end of my story because this is kind of like what was the defining moment and, um, you know, that, that clicked And the answer to that, the real answer to that question, Taylor, is I'm not quite sure, but there's is deeper behind that is I had hit this jumping off point in recovery rooms. They talk about where like, I couldn't picture going on another day with this, but like, I couldn't picture not using it, but the the thought of going on another day was greater pain than the thought of actually facing it and finally getting sober. And um, I believe that every every addict has to hit a bottom. Now, the bottom is where you put down the shovel and quit digging, like these old cheesy sayings, but they're so true. Like mm -hmm. I, I had hit a bottom, you would think, when I was living out of my car in 2009 with a girl I married under the influence, not remembering I married her, like that's how like we got it an old it's fine but um <laughs> she, uh, fine. you know and then i came to get in my house which was my car and my car was impounded and so they took my house and my car like you would think that's like a bottom like nope i like found a way to like keep going more and more and so in 2012 um my parents finally had put in a lot of boundaries they gone to what's called the sister program of of Alcoholics Anonymous called Al-Anon and they really screwed up my using. They learned these things called boundaries and they put them in with me and they enforced them. And I wasn't allowed around there. And that was a hard decision for them to make, but they said, hey, you're on your own. My mom was gonna love me to death, literally was gonna enable me into the grave. Mm -hmm. And so when parents reach out to me and they talk about their kid and I'm like, listen, you're not gonna like this answer because I did, and there's plenty of people who don't have to go to this route, no. but for me, I wouldn't have got sober if my parents didn't quite, they, they were going to, they were going to enable me into the grave, like I said. And so they stopped enabling me and they, they cut me off. My mom would still text me occasionally and let me know she loved me or like, but if I asked them for money, the answer was no, like, nope, they would not, no matter how much of a beautiful story I had about why I needed it. The answer was no. And I was not allowed around there. And if I came around, they'd call the cops. And that's because I stole from them frequently. I, I wasn't trustworthy. And I remember gotten a really big victim stance at first. And that last year, I just said, you know, because my pattern was I'd go four or six months um, on a bender, maybe three to four sometimes. And then something would stop me. The cops were a great thing to stop me. But for a long time, my parents would intervene and be like, you need to stop this. Let's send you to detox. They'd send me to a medical detox. And then I'd go to rehab. And after so many years of doing this, they finally just said, no, enough's enough. And so I, I didn't draw a sober breath until for, for almost a, from January 30th, I remember this is the day I got out of jail and I used the next day until my sobriety date of November 20th of 2012. So I used for basically about 11 months straight. And um, that was a, the longest run consecutively. Um, I had no jail time hanging over my head. I completed my time and I went and that year got darker and darker. And, uh, and towards the end of the year, and I was homeless the whole year and I was very resourceful. I never had to sleep on the streets, but um, by that point, you know, I looked like a junkie. I did not look, I would still sometimes lift early on in my addiction, 
it was really I I didn't really look like a junkie by the end. Like I was that guy you'd be in 7-Eleven. I'd be standing behind you and you might grab your kid and pull him a little closer because I did not look well. I did not look right. It was very clear who and what I was. And so towards the end of the year um, and I got involved with some really, really gnarly people um, that I didn't know that evil of people existed in Salt Lake City, Utah, to be honest. Um, apparently they're everywhere if you look for them. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of people I got high with that were good people. And I think that's important to know. I was a good person. I was raised by a great family. I was raised with God in my life. And I would meet certain people out there where we would like connect at a soul. Like I could tell, I was like, we'd look at each other. Like, what are we doing? Like good people. I met some great girls that I'm just like, and we had some deep chats and then we'd be like, okay, we can't go far this far down the rabbit hole because we might actually admit that we shouldn't be doing this. Like it was like, we knew we shouldn't be there. But towards the end, I, I, and then I used to some people, especially at the end that were legitimately not good people. Yeah. But I think most addicts are actually really good people at their core, but there's some people out there that are genuinely not good humans. And, and, um, and I got scared and I couldn't tell if it was the paranoia from staying up for days on end, or if it was real to this day, I don't, I don't know that discernment, but towards the end of that year, I, um, it was getting cold. Um, for listeners in Utah, it was November by this point. And, you know, I was having to do whatever I could to get money to scramble, to get a really cheap hotel room downtown. And then, you know, and then every day was just groundhogs. They doing the same thing over and over to try to get money for drugs and then try to find a place to stay and staying at some really, really questionable places. And at the end of the year, I got a phone call from my mother. Um, and she said that my grandfather had died and, um, and she said, I really want you at the funeral. And I said, I really want to be there. And she said, just do whatever you got to do to be right. And I knew what that meant was don't be so high on, on heroin that I'm drooling over myself and don't be withdrawing um, because it's almost even worse that way. Cause I'm just, I can't function. Yeah. Um, and of course the day came and I had ran out of the drugs. And so she comes to pick me up from this um, rickety dink motel I was staying at. And I knew I was going to go into withdrawals, but I was like, okay, I'm starting, but maybe I can just push through. There was something in me. It was like, you need to show up for your grandfather's funeral. Like you can't do anything right. Just do this one thing right. And I thought I could just maybe make it through. And we started driving and they hit hard and I vomited in her car and I'm shaking and I'm shivering and she's crying. She's like, what do we need to do? I looked at her and I said, we need to go to the dealer's house. And she was so mad at me. So I made my good little religious mother drive me to the drug dealer's house. Keep in mind, we backtrack about 40 minutes by this point to go all the way here. And so finally get it and um, made her give me 20 bucks that insult to injury. And then she, uh, we hop in the car and she says, we're going to be late. We're driving up to a place called Brigham City in Utah. And, and we're yeah. clear out West Valley at this point. And we're already going to be late to the funeral. And she's like, I am not showing up that late. Hop in the back seat and do whatever you got to do. You see, my mom knew I used drugs, but she never watched me do drugs, obviously. Yeah. And, um, you know, a little bit of graphic detail, but she looked back and it's it's a it's a not it's a gnarly scene for an IV drug addict. There's blood and you're you can't find a vein because they all hate you by this point and there's blood dripping on her seat and she's watching in the rearview mirror and she's just she's not even looking at the road she's just looking at me and tears are just streaming down her face and she's not she's not even they're not yup yups it was if you could look at what heartbreak looked like that was heartbreak and just every time i, I remember it so vividly and tears just rolling down her face 
and she's not even wiping them. And her mascara is just running. And I remember I finally do it and, and instantly you feel better. But it was one of the first times that even though it hit me, I could not fill this giant size hole inside of me. Um, and it was what we call the gift of desperation and recovery. Like it was a turning point that I'll never forget. And I looked at her and I said, I'm sorry, mom. And she didn't say a word. I don't know how we didn't crash because she was just glued her eyes on me, just slowly shaking her head, just crying. And, and we drove up there in complete silence. And I remember in that moment, I thought you have two options. You can either kill yourself. And the first, that option sounded more reasonable kill yourself or you can finally get and stay sober. Like there was not a choice to go on another day. And, um, and that night, um, I was arrested, um, going to get drugs and I happened to be driving a stolen car that to this day, I did not know was stolen, but I've always said that was God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. You see, because two or three days before that moment in the car with my mom, I prayed for the first time in years. Yeah. Um, and I just said, God, if you're out there, like, please make this stop. Like, I don't know what to do. I'm scared. Like I got, this has got to end. Please, please. I don't know what to do. Like, I'm so addicted. I can't just stop. Like I'm so bad. And, um, you know, guy asked me to drive. I don't remember his name even. And I, he, I thought he was just too loaded. Turns out the car was stolen and we were pulled over immediately on the freeway. And I remember when he told me the car was stolen, it was this moment of surrender, like, my first thought was you should go on a high speed chase. But then I was like, I'm in like a 94 Hyundai Elantra. Like I should probably just, um, and my second thought was like, thank you, God. And so I pulled over and, um, cop came up, asked me if I knew why he pulled me over. And I was like, I sure do. This car is stolen. Apparently he just told me, I didn't know that swear to God, but you can take me to jail. I need to go to jail. Cause I'm going to get drugs. I'm a danger to myself. Like I thought about killing myself earlier. Like I need to go. And he was like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, you're really excited to go to jail. Let's go. So took me to jail and, uh, and that's where my journey began. And that was November 19th of, of 2012. And so wow. to answer your question, I think it was a couple things was one, my parents finally put in boundaries because they love me enough to finally do what now having a child, like having to cut him, like just cut him out of my life and just worry every night that you're going to get a phone call that he's dead. Like, I can't even imagine what I put my parents through. And I couldn't, I couldn't fully even comprehend it until I'm a dad myself. Totally. And number two was I had to get in enough pain and it was so bad. And that I finally was willing. And number three was, I think that was the first time that I had genuinely, genuinely reached out to God and just said, I please, please, please help me. And I meant it. Like I meant it. It wasn't like, wow. Hey, please help me not go to jail. They're pulling me over. Yeah. It wasn't foxhole prayers. It was legitimate. Like the first time I just tried to connect. And so, yeah, that was a really long winded way of telling you. Well, it's, it's such an inspiring story, but what I think is, is important to note. And I just know this from following you is it certainly didn't end there, right? It more, began like the story kind of began there because obviously going through recovery and and doing what you've done i have to think is one of the most difficult things for a human body to go through i mean literally those withdrawals have to just be the the bottom of the barrel right like kind of that rock bottom um but you've also spoken about how throughout your sobriety there was a lot of internal work that you did right so you talk about how externally you kind of were achieving the health that you 
wanted and the recovery that you wanted, but what did that internal journey look like over the course of the last 10 years? Yeah, that's what I really like talking about. Sometimes um, I was looking at the time and I'm like, I probably spent too much time talking about what it was like. Sometimes to give you true appreciation that like, and yeah. I hope that someone out there is listening and that by giving you more context, like, like there is so many people who are touched in one way, shape or another, even if it's a cousin or a sibling or a significant, like, you know, um, or a kid, especially that's addicted to drugs. And I, some people have been like, well, I don't know if your story was as bad as my kid. Like I'm kind of lost hope. And I'm like, oh no, I was like pitching the, like the, the yeah. bottom of the barrel junkie. That was me. Yeah. And, um, it was, um, it was, it's been this evolution of, you know, looking over the years of this, this internal work, the first year was just, I was honestly like, if, um, if I just laid my head down at night, clean and sober one more day, that was a success for that day. And like, I, I would, I would feel pretty proud about myself and towards the end of the year, but especially as I got into year two was like, okay, no longer is that just okay. How are you treating other people? How do you show up for the people? Mm -hmm. How is your selfishness? And so it's in this evolution of kind of each, each progression looking at, uh, you know, different ways that when I lay my head on the pillow, I have like, yeah, I was a success today. And those standards and expectations have continually raised and raised. And while I never want to forget the blessing it is for a guy like me to draw yet another sober day, no matter how many thousands of days there is behind me is, um, I have higher standards for myself. And that has taken a lot of, a lot of work to become the man I want. And I've always talked about, you know, kind of, I, I modeled key nutrition after this. And then, um, this, that kind of morphed into my next level experience program, which is I do three cohorts a year and it's a, it's an intense deep dive and is this four legged chair of health. Right. And I, I realized like the physical health is, is, is really important. And that really originally came to me with clients. I realized, okay, but if we're not taking care, they're coming to me for this physical health, but their emotional, mental, and spiritual health, like just picture sitting on a chair and it's completely like one leg is not even there. The other one's like super wobbly. It's like, okay, you can kind of balance on the two legs, but eventually one's going to give out and then they all give out. Right. And so it's been a real, um, and that's what I implement in my own life is seeing what I'm doing to take care of my physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual health on a daily basis. And, and so, you know, lots of therapy, um, lots of, of mentors, lots of life coaches, um, and, um, and just continually trying to deepen my spiritual, um, connection and like that's evolved and changed each year and kind of what it looks like, but it's, it's not been always peaches and candy cane. And like I've <clears throat> recently last year went through a phase where I realized I'd gotten really stagnant. I called it stagnant. It, actually looking back, it was going backwards. You know, what's crazy is the monetary success, business finances, those were going up. But, and that clouded and jaded some of my actual perception of like, is Brad really doing the work inside? I knew I was getting a little bit complacent. I was resting on my laurels a little, but um, now where I'm at today, it, I realized like, oh, I was absolutely slowly going backwards. And, um, and so it's taken a lot of soul searching just in the last six months. And I've like, the last two or three months have been amazing. The prior three months prior to that, um, filled with a lot of anxiety because I finally got honest with, with myself on some ways I'm not showing up in life that I need to. And a lot of them was a hard pill to swallow, but I think 
personal development, personal growth is so amazing, but there's going to be some really painful moments in there. I talk about peeling layers off the onion, right? And it's like, I hit a new one where I was like, oh, that really stings. Ooh, that's, that's an intense one. Um, and that's at 10, 10 years sober that I kind of hit a, a, a new emotional bottom because I finally decided to get honest with myself to some things, I, ways I was showing up in relationships and other areas of my life um, were not serving me, you know? Yeah. But I think what is so powerful about that is just to illustrate that you're never done, you know, and and the work that we can mm -hmm. do on ourselves is something that never ends. And that's not a bad thing. And so when we have those lulls, it's just a natural part of kind of the vacillation of the human experience where it's like we have those growth times and then we also have some of the more regression times. And I think what I appreciate about your story is, I mean, initially your story is so inspiring and kind of draws you in, but the fact that you emphasize so much these four legs of fitness, right? Because like you said, for you in high school, and I had a similar experience myself where you can have like all of the physical elements that should make a person happy, if you will, right? But then it doesn't. And I think many people are under the guise that if I just have the body that I want, then everything's going to be great. I'm going to be happy. I'm never going to be sad or depressed again. And the more that we can focus on a comprehensive approach to a person's wellness, which can include fat loss and aesthetics, um, I think the more success you can create and just the better life you can build overall. And that's what I just, I really um, admire about the content that you share is you're obviously a very intelligent human being when it comes to, you know, fitness and nutrition and, and how to optimize those things. But to come at it from such a comprehensive level, I think is so important and often underrated in the fitness community. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, what's interesting is, you know, if I post a, um, you know, uh, a workout video always does way better on views and, and shares mm -hmm. and likes or whatever than something about your most emotional, mental or spiritual health. And I had somebody say to me, well, why don't you just stop posting that stuff? And I was like, is that's who I am at my core? And like, that's, that's my real message. Listen, you, you can go find a dime a dozen, um, on, you know, how to do a correct, you know, you know, sure. bicycle or whatever. Yeah. Um, and you know, but that's, that's really the message I want to get across. And if not as many people see it, but the people that do needed to hear that, that means way more than me than, than any of the other stuff. Um, because if you having just the great body and listen, there's been times in my sobriety, one reason I don't compete anymore was I remember there was a picture I took right before I was like three days out from my show. And I still have that picture and I am, I'm dripping sweat. So I'm assuming I was just doing cardio, um, or I was just really hot. One of the two <laughs> um, and I've shredded abs. There's veins running sideways through my veins, through my abdomen. And I very distinctly remember looking at that picture when I got done taking it and the heinous things I said to myself, I was somehow too fat and too small, all wrapped under one. I look at that picture now and I was like, oh, um, yes, please sign me up. I'd like to yeah. have that shred of abs for the summer. Yep. And then I remember what, and I'm pretty lean right now, but I, that was a, that was the next level. And I also remember, man, like, I wonder if I really now being where I'm at in my, my growth internally, that if I, I think if I got to there again, a one, I don't want to, it's not worth the sacrifice for me. Oh. Um, because I know what I have to sacrifice in my life to get that lean and I don't feel great. And so I'm like, yeah, no, like I'm lean enough right now. But number two, if I did, I think I would have more appreciation. I sure as hell hope I would because 
I I remember thinking you looked that good and you were that miserable because you put all your stock on that one leg. And while I am all about people wanting to look good, I think it's, I am not about like shaming people for wanting to improve their body. Like if you want to improve your body, like props to you, especially if you're in like a dangerous health zone, like let's do it. Yeah. Uh, but that, that will not end. If I, if we snapped our fingers, if I snapped my fingers tomorrow and made somebody their goal weight and their, their goal body, you know, shape and size, it's like a brand new car. Like you're pumped for a couple of weeks and then it's like, meh, meh whatever. Uh, yeah. Like, you know, you start complaining about the payment or whatever, like I do. And I'm like, oh, I bought it and I was super yeah. pumped on it. Now, yeah. People are like, how do you like your car? I'm like, it's expensive. Like, <laughs> a payment. Like, it's like real quick that gratitude shifts. And so we know that looking good is part of this, but mostly feeling good in your own skin. But there's an aesthetic component to that for a lot of people. But man, yeah. when you get the other stuff, like that's what's truly going to build happiness. Yeah. And I think that, like you mentioned earlier, unfortunately, that isn't the answer that people want. <laughs> they don't want to have to pay attention to the internal work, the narrative, the dialogue, the self-talk, the emotional component of it. And it can often be the most important work. And so I just love the the way that you share your knowledge and the the perspective that you take on it, just because I think it's so important. And coming from someone that has done bodybuilding shows, I think that it it has an extra element of um, of validity, just because you have had that ultimate level of leanness and musculature and vasculature, right? And so I just really, I, I think it's just an important thing to emphasize. Um, I want to be mindful of your time, but I want to see if we can get like your top five fat loss tips. Well, I mean, we look at fat loss. Number one, like, I mean, you have to be in a calorie deficit. Like, I don't care what anyone else tries to tell you, like how you want to create that is up to you. And I've always, you know, it's interesting. It was asked on a podcast to me, what's your favorite diet? And I said, oh, the one that you can sustain, you like, you feel the best on and that you can adhere to. Like, that's as simple as it is. Do I think mm -hmm. there's ones that are probably more advantageous for long-term health than others to get you from A to B? Yeah, but like, I'm I'm really like, however you want to create a calorie deficit. Now, I think there's far more healthy ways to do it, but, um, you know, and I think, you know, not everyone has to track their food, but initially I think you need to at least get a gauge of how many calories you're eating. Yeah. It's a good self-awareness tool for sure. Yes. Um, and, um, you know, I think, I think someone's outside the box for sure is, I mean, focusing on food quality, but also, you know, living in that 80, 20, I think is really important. Meaning like if you tell yourself you can't ever have anything, then you're inherently, that's all you're going to want. Um, yeah, like I don't, I, I, I see these, you know, I'm, I'm in this men's coaching group and a bunch of these guys keep doing 75 hard for like the bajillionth time. And I was like, you know, that seems like the real flex is like go 75 days and do this and like no cheat meals. But the real flex is like, what are you doing the other, you know, you're not doing it. Yeah. The other nine and a half months of the year. Yeah. That's the true flex is like day after day of living a healthy lifestyle, just because you honor and value yourself enough to do it. Like that's the real flex. I'm not that imp like, it's impressive when someone can complete 75 days of that rigid of structure. But I'm really, I'm really curious to see what you do the other, you know, the other nine and a half months of the year. That's the true flex to me. But um, that was a tangent. Sorry. Manager stress. Um, not that inherently that cortisol like makes you fat. Um, 
However, it will influence your eating behaviors. Um, it can influence your your um, inflammation and fluid retention. So like as far as the scale, if that's going down, but man, stress, we just live in a very, very high stress world. And already, if you're taxing your body with workouts and you're putting yourself in a deficit, there's gonna be in a level of an imposed stress. Now that's not necessarily bad. The, the, the physiological stress we're imposing with workouts, we're obviously getting this huge benefit. We're also getting this dopamine and serotonin post-workout. So it can kind of help put you back into a parasympathetic. But um, I think, you know, managing stress, I know you've gone and done some breath work stuff. Um, uh, deep breathing meditation. I'm so big into, um, I just, if you don't manage your stress, it will manage you bottom line, like, and it will affect your results, um, in your fat loss and your health journey. We know that chronic stress leads to a myriad of different, um, you know, problems in the body. And so, um, I'm trying to just not give the basic boring ones on you, but, um, uh, move your body. You got like, steps uh it's, i've had people try to challenge me like you are obsessed with steps and i'm like not like i i'm they're like that was have variances don't you know and i'm like yes i do know that but it's the inherent goal of shooting for you know eight to ten thousand steps a day and um i upset some people i upset some people recently with a reel that i did when i said if you can't get at least 7500 steps a day you probably don't want to lose fat bad enough and that offended people but that i stand by it there are yeah. exceptions if you can't use your legs, I get it. Like you're not like, or someone's like, I have a degenerative disc disease and I have to walk with a cane. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to the people that just won't go out and go for a simple walk instead of watching Netflix. And it's the truth. When we look at need expenditures, that's your non-exercise activity thermogenesis. That's that's all calories you're burning outside of, of your exercise. That makes up a bigger chunk of your calories burned in a day than your exercise. And kind of figure you're like, okay, let's say I work out an hour a day, four times a week. That's an average of 40 minutes a day. I'm making that math up, but like 40 minutes a day spread over seven days. If you know, okay. So what are you doing the other, you know, 16 hours of your day? And that's why I just think if you can't just move your body and walking despite any benefits with added fat loss, so good for digestion, blood sugar regulation, your mood, your everything, like just walk, like just be active. Like track your steps, be active or give yourself, you know, track your steps, give yourself like a set amount of time to walk every single day. Um, and eat enough protein. Um, I don't think that most human beings eat enough protein unless they're tracking it. And that's the truth. And, um, protein is going to help keep you more full. Um, it's definitely going to help you not lose muscle tissue as you're dieting as we want to lose fat, not muscle. Um, and sleep, I guess, is the other one. I mean, I could keep going with ones, but like if I'm just kind of trying to narrow in on five ones, um, sleep just plays such a big role, kind of like stress when you're constantly sleep deprived, that also stresses your body out, but you have an increased level. It's called your ghrelin, which is your hunger hormone. And so if you've ever noticed when you don't get enough sleep, you often notice either you're really hungry or what's actually common too is very inconsistent eating pat like yeah like oh i'm really not hungry and then all of a sudden you're starving and then you overeat and then like you know you're not hungry and then you're starving again so being able to regulate ap appetite as well as fluid retention so again that's not fat loss but if you're looking to lose on the scale one thing that's really frustrating is when you feel like you've been doing really good but you haven't slept well for two nights straight and you hop on the scale and it's up a little like don't freak out but Getting enough sleep um, has not just, I mean, you're talking about one of the, the best health hacks out there. It's like people are like, what's the best pre-workout? And I'm like, get enough sleep. Like, yeah. seriously, 
that has changed the game for me. I've been used stimulant pre-workout. I have nothing against it. I mean, I think that it's a lot of stimulant, but I haven't used it in probably eight or nine months. And, um, and the company I work with sends it to me for free and I just give it away. I don't use it. Um, and that's because my sleep has been so much better the last eight or nine months than it was the prior eight or nine months. I just don't feel like I need it anymore. And I yeah. feel so much better. Um, sleep. And also that's when you're going to kind of, you know, get this reuptake of growth hormone and just, we don't sleep enough. That's the truth. So, yeah. well, and I, again, what I appreciate about everything you just said, and it's akin to what I have shared a great deal on this podcast is just kind of the simplicity of it. I think sometimes we like to overcomplicate things. And I, for one, get a sense of relief knowing that it's like, okay, there's so much I can do for myself if I just focus on my sleep hygiene. There's so much I can do for myself if I just walk, right? Versus the idea that it needs to be so exact per calorie, per gram, per whatever, um, you know, thing that we tend to hyper fixate on. And so I appreciate all these tips. I think they're so spot on and are things that we just have to continue to remind ourselves that it doesn't have to be too complicated. We can just emphasize these basics and do, you know, cover 90% of our needs. If, if every American worked on first getting some more sleep and I'm not, that's, that's always going to be an evergreen issue for a lot of people. I'm not saying it's just like I ebb and flow and it's um, yeah. you know, really good. And then I wasn't good for a little bit. And, um, but I noticed cause with ever with, with energy, everything is possible, right? You're going to find you walk a little more. You might have a little more energy, go to the gym and it all starts in the, in the bed, like getting enough sleep. Right. Um, but if people got more sleep, they, I'm not even saying counting and tracking their protein, but tried to eat a, a serving of protein, like a fistful or whatever with each meal or snack, like have protein as the base. I'm not even saying like this bodybuilder amount, I'm saying just have protein with everything. Mm -hmm. Every time they eat, having a little serving of protein with it. And, um, and walked like we could solve a lot of the, I'm not saying solve the obesity crisis, but sure. that number would just drop a lot. Like just by, if people were just consistent with those three things and then from there you get into the nitty gritty, but honestly, all the advanced knowledge I have to like, I don't, I don't use this a lot on a daily basis. Granted, I don't see as many clients anymore, but even the ones I do have, it's like, we don't, if I can just get them to be consistent. I don't really yeah. have to use these advanced techniques till we're talking like if somebody's already pretty lean and they're trying to get like even leaner. Um, I spend most of my day just trying to drive adherence and compliance because if we can get that, this is not rocket science and people will drop faster or slower, but your metabolism's not broken. You're not that you're probably just not consistent enough. And I know that sucks to hear, but you're probably not eating 1200 calories the days you track, you're eating 1200, but then you're binging on the weekends. Mm -hmm. Like, it takes, I think there's a level of self-awareness and I've had clients where I've, I gently call them out. I'm never a dick. And they're like, that was the turning point for me. You're right. Like I'm lying to myself. So therefore I'm lying to you. Right. Yeah. Well, Brad, I am so grateful for your time. I am so grateful for what you've shared today. How can people work with you? Yeah. So, you know, over my Instagram, it's at the sober bodybuilder on Instagram. Like we said, that's where I'm most active. And, um, I have a coaching company called key nutrition and, uh, I coach myself a little bit. Um, and I have a team of six coaches and then uh, that's just kinutrition.com. And then uh, what I'm really passionate about is the next level experience, which I mentioned, and that's a four month interactive um, intense and, and um, intimate experience of about, you know, 12 to 15 people going through a cohort at a time. And uh, it's, it's kind of focused on six different pillars of mental, emotional, physical, spiritual, um, uh, 
abundance and uh, relational. So like um, relationships with yourself and and others. And so um, that's what I'm really passionate about. Uh, it's been super fun. And so our next one launches in uh, late summer, early fall, and that'll be the last one for the year. But that's just my next level experience.com for any more information on that. Awesome. And I will have all of those links um, in the show notes of this episode. Brad, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much. Are you ready to lose weight, but you don't know where to start? I have something for free that can help. Here at Brain Diet, I offer a free set your custom macros call. On this call, I'll want to know what your goals are and set you on the nutritional path to achieving them. This is a private call with me where I get all the information about you and your body so I can deliver a custom calorie and macronutrient count that when implemented will lead to weight loss in a kind and nourishing way. And if you're ready to hire a coach to walk you through every step of your weight loss journey, I'll tell you everything you need to know about that too. So if it's your time to start losing weight in a sustainable, healthy, and nourishing way, sign up for this free set your custom macro call at the link in the show notes. I'll see you soon.